Under the Tartan Sky, Episode 50, produced 14 February, 2018. Few would argue that Scotland is a photographer's paradise. From Caribbean-style sandy beaches to its snow-capped mountains, from shimmering lochs to glacially carved glens, from rural crofting villages to the urban centers of Glasgow and Edinburgh, for the photographer, Scotland has a lot to offer. Whether a professional, an amateur, or just a holiday snapper, to aid in capturing the very best possible pictures, it helps to know where the best locations are the best time of day or year to be there, and in the event of your visiting Scotland, often, well, just how to get there. I'm Glenn Moyer, and fortunately, a new guidebook has just been released that provides all of this information and more. In a moment, we'll embark on our very own Scottish photo safari when we chat with professional photographer and now author of the latest photo view guidebook, Photographing Scotland, here under the tartan sky. in Scotland is going to be braw. The stage is set and the curtain has gone up on Scotland's Year of Young People. It's 12 months of events intended to inspire all of Scotland while allowing its young people to shine and showcase their diverse talents and contributions to their communities, their country and the world. Whether you're young or just young at heart, why not visit and see all that Scotland and its young people have to offer in 2018, the Year of Young People. What's the one thing more people bring back from a holiday than anything else? Photographs. In 2017, it was estimated that almost 1.3 trillion photographs were taken, and that number will increase this year. These hard-to-wrap-your-head-around numbers are spurred on by the development of digital camera technology, especially camera phones, credited with the taking of more than 80% of all photos. But whether you rely on a camera phone, a point-and-shoot pocket camera, or a full-fledged DSLR, that's a digital single-lens reflex camera, in most cases, you want to capture the very best image possible. Capturing that perfect image certainly requires a working knowledge of your camera, but the photographic experience is not just about having the right camera and knowing how to use it. It's also about being at the right place, at the right time. This is where a good guidebook can come in handy especially when visiting a destination that, well, may be largely unknown to you. For those planning to visit Scotland, there is good news in the form of the recent release of the latest in a series of photo view guidebooks, Photographing Scotland. At 600-plus pages covering some 280 locations, the book was more than four years in the making. For ease of use as a planning tool, the country is divided into five regions, the Lowlands, Eastern Highlands, Western Highlands, Western Isles, and the Far North. 
The various locations of each region are highlighted on maps, and the provided information includes suggestions on what to shoot at each location, directions on how to get there, ease of accessibility, and suggestions on the best time of year and or day on which to see the location at its very best. Whether you have an interest in photography or not, that kind of information alone can be quite valuable in any holiday planning. Also included are general sections about Scotland's climate and unpredictable weather, driving and parking etiquette, wildlife you might encounter, remembering that much of Scotland is still real wilderness, safety equipment for you and your camera gear, emergency contact information, and, well, even a few words about the dreaded midges. Oh, and did I mention photographs? What would a photography guidebook be without photographs? Hundreds of stunning images are included, which, if considered alone, would make for an outstanding coffee table book. These photos, and all of the information included herein, are the work of award-winning Glasgow photographer Douglas or Doogie Cunningham. Doogie owns Leading Lines Photography and is especially renowned for his landscape photography. In 2016, he won the Classic View category of the Landscape Photographer of the Year Award. Doogie is also in demand as a wedding photographer, does commercial and corporate events and commissions. His work has sold widely, including to corporate clients in cities as far apart as London and New York. Photographing Scotland is an impressive volume of work. But before talking about the book, I wanted to hear from Doogie about just how he came to have an interest in photography. I think every little boy loves cameras, don't they? Everybody enjoys taking pictures. I really started taking photography seriously, though, uh, through outdoor sports, through going climbing and kayaking, mostly. So, you know, if you're out kayaking the rivers and all that, you hit a nice big rapid, you stop, you take pictures of your friends running them, they take pictures of you running them, and you get a bit of the old Kodak courage for stuff. Uh, I, same thing out climbing and all the rest of it, and just slowly it kind of evolved from being more interested in pushing myself as hard as I could, kayaking and climbing it. I was never particularly good at it, to taking photographs of my friends being the main focus for the day. Uh, yeah, it all developed from there, really. Uh, when I, I lived down in the Lake District in the north of England for a couple of years as well. Yeah, yeah. And I, that was when I really started getting more actively interested in straight-up landscape photography as well, just going out purely just to take a photograph rather than to do a climb or do a route or anything like that. So, yeah, it's always been mainly about being out in the hills. But I think the interest in the outdoors and the interest in the, in the mountains came first, and the photography kind of evolved from that rather than the other way around. Well, you certainly live in the right country for it in terms of landscape photography. Is landscape photography really your, your first love? I mean, I, I know you're a professional photographer, and you do the things that I guess all photographers have to do to pay the bills, weddings and events and that kind of thing. But is landscape photography where your real love is? Uh, yes and no. I don't think I would want to restrict myself to purely doing straight landscape photography. I, I love getting out. I do a lot of stuff for one of the big outdoor magazines as well, the great outdoors. Uh-huh. I, and it's lovely being out in the hills with other people, taking pictures of them doing things. It's, it's a totally different day to being out shooting landscapes on your own, but it, it's equally wonderful. And again, I, you said, you know, doing the things all photographers have to do to pay the bills. I really enjoy shooting weddings. It's, it's a total contrast to landscapes. It's about as, as different a genre as you could possibly get. It's a totally different discipline, but it's great fun. Work, it's, it's going from working out in the hills where you might not talk to anyone for three or four days at a time 
to shooting a wedding where you're surrounded by people and they're all having a great time and it's just a total it's a real buzz it's a nice it's a nice compliment I think so I would hate for my business to become purely one or the other I would love to try and, and keep a balance mm, that's it's a difficult difficult thing to market I think effectively market yourself as one business that does both maybe I need to work on diversifying the branding a little bit but I reckon from my personal satisfaction point of view I would I would love to keep keep out the two of them it's interesting because I guess my experience with most photographers is they all have sort of a, a central area or genre they like to work in. And, and I guess, though, that if you don't enjoy the wedding photography, you're not going to do a good job at it. No, I think you're doing people a bit of a disservice as well. I think, it, you know, if, you, if you're out there and you're enjoying yourself and you buy into it and you, you're working with people you, you, you enjoy their company, then... You know, you, you become part of the day, and it's all a bit of a buzz. If you're working there, and it's just purely a job, then you know, it's, it's you're quite an integral part of the day. I think. Yeah. I think if you're not enjoying it, then there's an easier ways to make a living. Yeah. But I reckon also that's the benefit of doing a bit of both. I reckon. I know personally, I, I need my quiet time. I need to get out in the hills. If I don't get out in the hills every few weeks, at least, you know, you, you start getting a bit grumpy. But equally, <laughs> I couldn't spend my entire life out there. I'm quite a social person. I need to be around people as well. So I need the balance. So working in both genres, I think, fits me as a character perfectly. Uh huh. Does living in Scotland help to inspire interest in photography? I mean, my goodness, from a, certainly from a landscape and a scenery, a scenic aspect, there's so much to work with there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's almost impossible to drive around the north of Scotland and not stop and take a photograph every day again. You have to have some kind of serious mental block about it, I reckon. But it's whether you, you want to take it to the next level and start going out deliberately taking photographs. But I think that, yeah, I think being surrounded by beautiful scenery all the time definitely helps people engage with photography on that kind of slightly deeper level. Yeah. I think, you know, when, when it's so beautiful out there, if you're driving around up, up north, every now and again you're going to come across some light or a wee moment. It's just really quite special. And when you get that good photograph, you get that nice moment captured whether it's on a camera phone or a regular camera or whatever, you get a good photograph and that gives you a little bit of a buzz. And once you've got that a couple of times, you start thinking, hey, you know what? I can learn a bit more about this and I could take better photographs the rest of the time. And it, it all, once, you, once you've got a wee taste of it, it's horribly addictive. Well, and one of the things that we'll talk about uh, as we get into this discussion about the new book is the light in Scotland. And I remember vividly, there's there's one photograph that I have in, in the many that I've taken on my trips to Scotland. And the one thing that impressed me during my first trip there was how the light is ever-changing. And this one image I'm thinking of um, is of a lonely house on a hillside up against the shore of a loch. And the sun was, I guess, shining down through the clouds, and it was literally moving across the landscape like a spotlight across the stage. And, yeah. and the moment that it hit on the house, you know, that was the image. I didn't catch it then. I caught it by the time I saw it happening and then caught the picture, the light had moved on. <laughs> but it's struck... I'm well familiar with that scenario. <laughs> yeah, the, the 30 seconds too late. Thing. Yeah, but, but it struck me how... Uh, how the light changes constantly there and how different the, the the same landscape can appear in a matter of, as you say, 30 seconds and the light yeah. can change. And I read so much about photographers in Scotland talking about, oh, the light at this particular day or this particular time was so special. Uh, you know, at this location, I have a friend who lives in Edinburgh and shoots, oh gosh, now I'm going to forget that. What's the Portobello? Uh, and goes out yep. and shoots on the beach quite a bit. 
And one of the things that's in the book, the point of this, where I'm going with this, is that one of the things that you do is, is give recommendations to people. I don't want to jump ahead, but you make recommendations on the best time of year and in some cases the best time of day to be at a specific location to capture just the right picture. And that all has to do a little bit with the light, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there's not necessarily ever a bad time to go to these places. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that, you know, if I've recommended go to a place in autumn, it doesn't mean it's not going to be great in the spring as well. Oh, yeah. It's just, you know, these places are particularly outstanding. And if you've got the benefit or and the luxury of choosing and planning a trip around the ideal time to get to a location, then, then that's when I would maybe suggest picking it. Uh, but, yeah, that, that, it's one of the one of the most amazing things it's got. It's got so many different. It's got very distinct seasons. So the summer is vastly different to the winter. Is vastly different to the autumn and even the spring. You don't always get that everywhere. No, I think. And being so coastal and having so many low lying islands and all that, you get you get the, the sea air and all the rest of it. It does it, does, it totally changes the light, especially at the ends of the day. Yeah, I, and I know what you're saying about the different seasons. I, in fact, I just recently came across a photo that I'm in a number of uh, Scottish Facebook groups. Scotland is seen through the lens and Scotland from the roadside. Yep. Um, and in one of those groups, someone just posted this incredibly beautiful shot of Black Rock Cottage uh, there in Glencoe yep. uh, and, and yep. all snowed in. And it's, it's a fantastic image. And I posted, I took his picture, then posted it against one I had taken of the same location on my first visit in 2014, which was during the late spring, late April, early May. Um, and, and I posted it saying, this is Scotland. This is Scotland in winter <laughs> because it's two yeah. completely different scenes of the same scene, which is just amazing. And where I live here in the South of the United States, we have what we call two seasons. We have, you know, summer and not summer. <laughs> That's about it. Well, I mean, even Scotland in summer, you get, you can get, I know it's, it's become almost like a massive cliche to talk about having four seasons one day. Oh, yeah. But it's yeah. so quickly over here. You know, if you got a summer squall comes through, you can go from blue skies and beautiful sunbather, taps off weather to like torrential rain in the space of 20 minutes and then it all clears up again and it just passes on through. It's just like a wee, a wee squall that passes on through and just completely changes your day, completely changes the character of the light, the, the entire scene in front of you. And then it moves on and lets you get back to your, your chilled out in the sun. It's, it, it, you've got to take it as you find it a lot of the time. But yeah. it just constantly evolves, it constantly changes, and it means you can keep coming back to the same place and rediscovering it again and again and again. So it, it never gets old, Scotland. Yeah, I'm, uh, I've lived in a number of places here in the States, and it seems like everyone has this, this saying, and they certainly do in Scotland too. In Scotland, it's four seasons in a day, and in most places you'll, you'll hear, well, if you don't like the weather, wait five or ten minutes and it'll change. And, and yet it was in Scotland where I really experienced that. Um, I'm telling more war stories than I'm, I'm supposed to. This is supposed to be about you telling me. But um, I, I was staying in a place uh, in Forth down in uh, Lanarkshire. The sun was streaming through the windows in the house where I was staying. It was a beautiful day out. And I thought, oh, wow, great day to go sightseeing. This is in January. So I, I go in and I hit the shower. And when I get out of the shower and I'm getting dressed, suddenly it's black as night out. And I went, what the, <laughs> you know, what? And I went and looked out the window and a snowstorm had moved in. And it's snowing to beat the band. And 20 minutes later, by the time I was dressed and ready to leave the house, the sun was out again. And it was just like, this is just amazing. <laughs> So, yeah. 
but but Scotland does have amazing light and, and changeable weather. And you're right; it, it's it's you know you can rediscover the same scene just by spending maybe an hour you know on location and, and finding it in different light and different uh, in some cases different exactly. weather. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the book specifically. This was four years in the making. How did you come to be involved in in putting this project together with PhotoView? Uh, more than a little bit of luck, really, to be honest with you. So one of the first regular jobs I ever got when I set up a business was to photograph the Keswick Mountain Festival in the Lake District. Uh, the organizers would employ me to go along and take photographs at the festival so that they could blog them and tweet them during the weekend and then also use them in their publicity for the next year. Because it's a really big festival, so there was another photographer and the two of us would split up who's doing what before the event kind of thing. And I was talking to him one year, I said, what have you been up to the last year? You know, he says, well, I've just, I've just finished writing a book. I was like, oh, that sounds quite good. What, what, what have you been writing? He says, I've just written a guidebook to the Lake District for landscape photographers. And I was like, oh, you little sod. I was thinking about doing something similar for Scotland. I can't believe somebody else had my idea first. It's worse than that. Somebody else had done my idea first. Yeah. It's still my idea, of course. You know, just somebody else had it first. Right. But, yeah. I, I, I was a bit gutted. We got chatting. He's like, well, you know, the publisher's talking about doing one for Scotland as well. Do you want us to put you in touch? Like, oh, well, if, you, if you're willing. So... Mick at PhotoView came along to the Keswick Festival that year and Stuart and I actually had a wee miniature exhibition on at the festival. Uh, some of his landscapes from around Lake District, some of mine from around Scotland. And I met Mick up at the, the exhibition as we were hanging it and we sat down and had a wee chat, a coffee and showed him some photographs and we seemed to get on. I think that was mostly it really. I think it was the fact that we got on well together yeah. as much as anything to do with the photographs. Uh, he agreed to give me a, a, a punt at it so he sent me out and I went out and shot a couple of locations and wrote them up as a kind of, you know, proof of the pudding. I, I, I'd not really done a lot of writing before. Done a few articles for TGO, but it's not quite the same as, as doing a guidebook. So, yeah, submitted a couple of sample things for him and, yeah, he took a gamble on me. Did yeah. you did you have a sense then that this was going to be a, a project that would take not weeks, not months, certainly not days, oh, but yeah. years? I knew it would be years, but when I when I signed the contract and shook his hand on the doorstep, I think we talked. I think it was either two years or two and a half years we talked about, rather than four and a half. But it, it just turned into a much bigger project than any of us had imagined, really. And I totally I, I can't thank them enough for for a start. The the book that I when I said I I considered doing something similar off my own back, my vision for it is totally different to the product we've ended up with now and. As much as I was a little bit reluctant to give up my idea to to run with their format, looking back on it now, theirs is a much better, much better format. It is, it is much more useful, definitely a much stronger product, and I reckon it's going to be much more popular. Uh, so, I yeah, I, I definitely a, a complete convert to the photo view way of thinking. How, how so? How did your concept differ from what, uh, what this book has, the form this book has ended up in? My my initial idea would be would have been to have more of a coffee table style thing and have you know big pictures on display with some more basic information. Whereas the photo view book is very much more like it's more of a, it's specifically a guidebook. So it's got loads of photographs uh, illustrating every every location and every viewpoint, but it's much more about conveying the information and yeah. giving as much information and help and and helping with the practicalities of getting out and photographing. Scotland or the Lake District or whatever. 
rather than being a display of the photographs. So, yeah, it is a, it's a much more practical product, whereas mine would have been a bit of a halfway house between a coffee table book and a guidebook. And I think for being a halfway house, I don't think it would have been particularly good at either of them. So I'm very glad that I didn't invest years in working on something that was a bit half-baked. Yeah. That's all down to, to Mick and Stuart. Yeah. Uh, but we, we agreed... I think it was two years, two and a half years or something like that, we said we'd, we'd, we'd give it uh, as a realistic time frame. And then I, I had to talk to them for the next year and a half or so after that. I, I can't possibly thank them enough. They've been incredible at giving me just a completely free hand to pick locations and write things. Uh, so it's right into their format, but in terms of content, they've just said, on you go, go on with it, give us a book to Scotland. It's been absolutely superb. And it's just one of these things. You keep going out, you keep discovering new places, and you keep finding new places you want to get to and check out, and it just keeps growing arms and legs. And I'll be honest with you, trying to do it all and pay the bills at the same time wasn't always easy. Trying to keep enough work on the table and get enough work done at the same time as being able to block out two, three, four weeks at a time in your diary to go away and research and photograph and write was, you know, that's probably a large part of why it took four years instead of two yeah well and let's be clear too this is not a uh this is not a pocketbook this is not something that a tourist a traveler or even an avid photographer in in scotland can uh you need some big pockets yeah <laughs> yes you would need some big pockets uh <laughs> even a pair of cargo pants i don't think would work um <laughs> we're talking about a book that is almost 600 pages um, over 600 photographs covering over 280 uh, locations. There, there's even a, a yeah. list of whiskey distilleries, which I'm a little curious about. But how do you even go about beginning to plan and organize a book of that level? How much of it was was organized and put together by yourself? And, and, I, and I guess how much direction did you receive uh, from PhotoView? Uh, in terms of the format of the book, PhotoView, uh, yeah, they... they gave me loads of direction. They have a standard format for writing up. You write up an introduction to each kind of location chapter. You do all your viewpoints. And then you have a separate bit that you box off for all the accessibility notes, the best time to get there, how to get there, and, you know, all, all, that, kind of, all that kind of thing. In terms of where to go, they were, they were great. They really did genuinely give me a free hand. And then there was a few places they suggested. Some of them went in, some of them I looked at and went to and said, eh. I'm not sure if it's worth the space. You've got to draw a line somewhere as well. You can't you can't include absolutely everything. So it's all about trying to walk a line between getting as much content in there as you can, but also trying to steer people towards the, the very best places in Scotland rather rather than trying to cover every nook and cranny, which on the one hand, I don't think it's possible. And on the second hand, I think it's probably counterproductive, to be honest with you. Yeah, because I, I think, well, I guess let's talk for a second too. Who's the audience for this book? Is, is it meant for um, photographers living in Scotland who, like you, have the time to go out and, and spend time away and, and make it to these locations? Is it primarily targeted to people like myself, tourists, who are visiting Scotland? I'm fortunate to, to come annually for usually a couple of weeks a year. Some people, I, I always laugh at people on, on Facebook that post, hey, I'm going to Scotland. I've got three days. What do I see? It's like, are you, oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. 
I'm yeah, going to go to Sky for the day. Yeah, oh, right. I'm going to the Iowa Sky. <laughs> I'm going to spend the day there. What you know? What should I go see? You know? Are you kidding me? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Or or Edinburgh, you know, I mean, I've been to Scotland four times and I haven't seen, you know, but just a a minute fraction of what there is to see in Edinburgh. I've not gone to Edinburgh on all four trips, but still, uh, you know, you could, you could spend, you could spend goodness knows how long just photographing Edinburgh, you know, forget Scotland, just the one city. Um, but back to the original question. So who do you perceive to be the primary audience for this book? Is it people, as I say, who are residents of Scotland or the UK, or is it meant to be a useful guidebook for your typical tourist? I would, I would very much hope both. I wouldn't have said it's a tourist guidebook and it doesn't get, it doesn't even attempt to give you any information on where to stay or where to eat or anything like that. It's purely about where to go and photograph. Right. But there's thousands of other resources aimed at that, uh, you know, so many, there's no point in reinventing the wheel. But I reckon I very deliberately tried to make it relevant to both local photographers in Scotland and visitors to the country. So there is there is travel advice, basic travel advice at the start of the book about how to get to Scotland, how the best ways to get around all the rest of it, pointing in the right direction and pointing to other resources that are out there, particularly online. Um, I tried very consciously to try and make it a good resource for planning a road trip. So like you say, the folk that are coming to Scotland say, oh, I've got two weeks, where should I go? You should be able to put yourself together a really good road trip through Scotland using the book. Uh, and whether you're a photographer or not, actually, if you just want to go and see the most scenic places in Scotland, hopefully it'll be a really yeah. good resource for people who want to come and you know, even just see these places, even if they don't take their photography that seriously. But I also tried to make it relevant for, for local photographers. I mean, I, I hold no illusions that somebody, a working photographer that lives and works in the sky is going to know more about Sky than it is in the book. Again, you've got to draw the line somewhere. But they don't work exclusively in Sky. So if they maybe want to go up the north coast of Scotland, up around Assent or whatever, then maybe they'll find stuff in the book that they find useful then. Or if they want to go over to the Cairngorm, they want to go to the west coast or, or down to Feast and Galloway or, or whatever, then, you know, nobody knows the whole of Scotland brilliantly. So hopefully, even the local guys, the guys that you know, that do live in Scotland and get out and photograph as much as they can, will still find it useful. Well, and I like what you say about um, being able to plan a road trip. Uh, on my trip coming up this year, I'm, I'm coming over in August, and I'm going to spend uh, intentionally two weeks uh, based on the Black Isle, and I want to do a lot of the North Coast 500 in that area. So I was looking through sections of the book that deal with that, and I like the fact that it's organized in that sense. For, for example, that if you're going to Scotland and you're going to be visiting the Highlands, there is a section in the book on the Western Highlands, a section on the Eastern Highlands. If you're going to be down on the borders, there's a section there. If you're going to be out in the islands, you know, it, it's not just a big book that, that you got to leaf through and find all about Scotland. It is regionalized uh, to help you kind of target the, the area of Scotland where you may be visiting or where you want to go see. And there was endless discussions with between myself and Mick and Stuart at PhotoView over how best to divide up and they, they, what even what order to put them in. Uh-huh. So all these sections start with the lowlands and then do we go to the eastern highways or do we go to the western highways or whatever. And we, we talked about it for endless hours and talking about even within the subsections, what order to put the, the viewpoints. And you know, I don't think that many people will notice, but they're all ordered in a, a way that roughly makes sense if you're driving around so, yeah, it is something we've been very conscious to try and make as functional and as flow as naturally as possible for people that are actually out there on the road 
rather than just, you know, sitting on the couch in the house. Your work is featured in the book, obviously. The picture that I saw of the herd of deer, I don't remember where it is, but oh my gosh, they're, they're so lifelike, you'd think they're going to jump right off the page at you. Um, it's a, a stunning photograph, uh, as are many in the book. But this is, as you said, it's a guidebook, and I was shocked with the amount of information. I mean, down to the GPS coordinates of the car park at, you know, at each location, and the, the, uh, the map grid reference, which is something we don't use much here in the United States, ordnance maps. I, 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 I'm amazed yep. at, the, at the people in Scotland who have the skill to read a map, because you would not find that here in the United States. People go, what? Well, <laughs> I think, I think given grid references for parking, I reckon everybody works for a sat-map these days, and it's so easy just yeah. to tap the coordinates and tap the postcode, and it'd be almost a shame not to, really, wouldn't it? But I also think up the north coast of Scotland as well. It's not always obvious if you're sitting looking at a map, even if you can read the map, it's not always obvious where the most convenient place to park and to park considerately as well. Because as as Scotland becomes more popular, a lot of these places are getting a bit busier and the, the infrastructure hasn't always kept up as well as it could, particularly in places yeah. around the north coast 500, which has just exploded in popularity over the last couple of years. And places like the sky, you go to some places in the sky like the fairy pools and parking's an absolute nightmare. It's just way too many visitors for what the infrastructure can handle. But they've not managed to catch up and improve the car parks and all the rest of it yet. So trying to find places, I mean, these are extreme examples, obviously, but trying to find places where people can park and direct them to places that they can park considerately and not obstruct the road or piss off the locals. Because you don't want to be part of the problem. If you're writing a guidebook, I think you've, you've got a responsibility to try and encourage people to have as minimal impact in that sense as you, as you possibly can. What we have tried to do, though, as well, you've got lots of good references for car parks and all the rest of it. And, uh, you know, there's good references. If you, if some of the, A lot of the, the locations are very accessible and more or less roadside. But there's quite a lot in there that require a bit of walk as well. Some of them quite easy. Some of them are up in the mountains. Try to give good references for navigational purposes so if there's a, a an important spot for navigating then i'll put in a good reference for it but i've tried to avoid giving coordinates for where to put down your tripod kind of thing <laughs> you know I, i'm not i'm trying not to be too prescriptive about exactly where you should go and take your photograph try to in fact try to encourage people not to go and take the standard shot that they've seen in facebook in the scottish travel society or in scotland from the roadside 16 million times right but to maybe go that little bit further and explore just a little bit beyond the, the particularly obvious spots. Yeah, I always enjoy um, a, a photograph that when, when I see a location where I've been and I go, wow, I, I never thought of looking at it from that angle. Maybe it, maybe it's from the same location, but taken at a lower angle or a higher angle. Or maybe it's you know from the side as opposed to straight on where I shot it. Uh, those kinds of, of images, they give me a fresh look at a location I've already seen and maybe photographed myself. Uh, and yet I think... Why didn't I think of that when I was? Why didn't I? Why didn't I see that picture? It's, it's not even about the consumers looking at the photograph afterwards. Though. It's about you getting out there and taking it as well. If yeah. you go out there and you do get past, if you're down at Elgol and you look at the rocks, the same four rocks that everybody photographs at Elgol because you can see them in the car park. Everybody takes a picture of them. But if you just go the other way, if you go and explore a little bit further and you find something for yourself and you put together a composition that's new to you, and you know the chances are somebody's shot it before, more or less. But if you go and find it for yourself, one of the most fundamental and profound 
enjoyment you get out of photography, landscape photography is about going out and discovering something for yourself, I think. And I think that when people go to somewhere that they've dreamt about for years and people are going up to, to the north of Scotland and they don't have the opportunity to go there every week, then they often play it too safe because they don't want to mess it up. If you're up there for a week and the weather forecast isn't great and you've got one night at a location you've dreamt about for years and the weather forecast is looking good, do you take a gamble and maybe wander down the coast an extra mile to see what you can see or do you stick to the shot that you know is good because you've seen it dozens and dozens and yeah. dozens of times online, you know? So hopefully in writing the guidebook and maybe saying to folk, hey, you know, if you do go past that, there's loads of really good stuff just around the corner. Then maybe people will take that gamble and they'll go that little bit further or maybe get a bit earlier, get there a bit early and, and take the time to go and investigate and make a choice. And people will have that little bit of extra satisfaction of getting something that's just maybe not quite as standard. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. It's, uh, it does. And I oftentimes find that I fall to the, the bad side of that, what I would say the bad side of that equation and that I don't take the risk sometimes. And, and, and then I'll see someone else's photography and uh, picture and go, Oh, wow. As I said, you know, I didn't know that there's, was there's there. There's nothing or, wrong with that either, though. As well, you, I think you've got to go out and shoot the standards. It's almost like oh, sure, you have to. And it's, I think a large part of doing that is is how you cut your teeth and you, you learn your craft. There's definitely nothing wrong with it. And let's be honest, these things are beautiful. So you want to have your own version of it in your catalogue somewhere, anyway, don't you? But I think people should have the choice and should have the the, the confidence to go and explore that a little bit further if they want to, without feeling like they're risking their one shot. To get back to the information that's in this book, you were touching on something that I found very useful in it. I'm almost 65 years old. I have bad knees. So mobility is an issue for me. Um, for example, when I visited Sky, as much as I would love to see the fairy pools, I just can't do it physically. And Old Man right. Store, I can't make that climb. It's just not going to happen. Um, I was impressed and appreciated the fact that at each of your locales that are in the book, there is an assessment of what the accessibility is, you know, is it a long walk? Is it an easy walk? Is there a steep climb at one section of it, et cetera? You were great about providing that kind of information, which makes it very valuable for me because, uh, you know, I would like to go and see this location and, and shoot this location. But by looking at your book, I can get a sense very easily as to whether it's something that, that I can access on, on my personal terms. That, that is something that four of you have made a, a point of putting a huge focus on, from the very start, all the photo view guides do that, and uh, I think it's an incredible thing, actually. Mick, the started photo view, has got oh, decades of experience writing guidebooks for climbers, and I think he's getting, and he, because he's been so experienced, it came out and it started with the very first book they did was the Lake District, and it came out as a, a very well-rounded, very well-formed format. There was no particular, I mean, it's evolved a little bit and been tweaked over time, but right from the very start, he's been absolutely on the nose with exactly what kind of information people want and need and will appreciate when they come to actually use the book rather than what we want to produce or write as photographers and authors. How much time was spent photographing the, the location versus gathering all of this useful information? <laughs> oh, that completely varies. There was a couple of locations that came together and I got them on the first day uh, and there was others that took several days for even one attempt or took three, four visits uh, over over the course of the whole four and a half years. So some of them, some of them you get really lucky and you know, it all falls together. Like Macri Moore and, and Aaron, I only had to visit it once 
it's a fairly straightforward place to write up. Uh, I got really lucky because I had lovely light when I was there that first night, and I got the photographs I needed, so I didn't feel the need to go back there. I could go and spend the time elsewhere. Other places, yeah, it was a bit of a nightmare if you go out there. And you can wander around in the rain or terrible, flat, boring light, and you can get the information and locations and your, all your grid references, and you can write up the directions, but you want to be able to display a location, maybe not necessarily at its absolute best, but you want to be able to, to do it a little bit of justice when you're photographing it for the book as well. So, yeah, there was a, a lot of places I went back to several times to get the photographs I wanted. Some of the locations are iconic. They are the locations that you see in, in every travel guide, Facebook page, uh, whatever reference you choose to use, travel blogs about Scotland. Uh, for example, Glenfinnan. Uh, where you have uh, the Glenfinnan Monument and where Bonnie Prince Charlie yeah. came ashore, and of course the the Glenfinnan um, Viaduct, um, yeah. and, and, and so you have those kinds of iconic locations, so that people who want to go and see that and photograph that, if they choose, um, the guidebook is excellent for finding those locations if you don't know where they are, or how to get to yeah. them. Um, Glenfinnan is a perfect example of a place. I went back to that viaduct. I wanted a photograph of the viaduct with the steam train on it. Uh-huh. And I, I was desperate to get that shot. And I went back there twice a day, every day for three days before I finally got a photograph with the light on it. Wow. Uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was beginning to get a bit tiring towards the end. <laughs> <laughs> but it finally, it finally came good and it was all, all grand. Yeah. Uh, I think it was actually the last steam train over it for the whole season. So if it didn't come good in that afternoon, it was oh the back in the next year so there you go wow other locations in the book are some of your personal favorites and, and perhaps maybe a little lesser known to someone who isn't uh, intimately acquainted with uh, much of Scotland um, which did you have more fun shooting the, the iconic locations or the lesser oh. known oh I don't know that's a tough call I don't that's a, that's a really good question uh, I mean the iconic places are iconic for a reason they are incredible yeah. they are just phenomenal and if you get somewhere like the Buchel or whatever in really good light, then it's just fantastic. It doesn't matter how many times it, other people have photographed it. It's still an absolute joy to go out there and take some pictures of it. And it's your, and it's your picture, too. That makes it different. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. Everyone wants, everyone wants to take their picture, don't they? That, that's, yeah, that's the whole thing with photography, isn't it? It's just it's the fun of the chase as much as anything else. But I think, uh, yeah, I don't know. Some of the, some of the lesser-known places... I mean, they're like Benacreekle. I'm sorry, my, my Gaelic pronunciation is absolutely shocking. I know I'm a Scotsman, but I, I wasn't brought up in Gaelic, so it is, it is absolutely terrible. I hang my head in shame, but there you go. But it's up in Torridon. It's a tiny little hill surrounded by some of the, the most epic, like infamous walking routes in, in Scotland. So then you get Ben E, you get Legach, you get Ben Allegan. This is a tiny little Corbett tucked away just to north of them. And you walk up the top of it, and it's a, a fairly uninspiring walk along the plateau until you get to the summit. And it's this tiny little flat summit plateau, and it, it's the kind of place, you know, not very many people make the effort to get to, unless you're deliberately going through and trying to tick off your list of Corbett's. You're not going to really go out your way to go up there. Oh, what an incredible view. Absolutely just mind-blowing, stunning. Perfect view over all these incredible mountains from a viewpoint that most people never really get to see. It was, yeah. So nights like that. I, I, another night as well. At the flip end of the spectrum was up in Assen. I remember parking up the van one night, 
I normally sleep in the camper van. And uh, I thought, oh, I've got a really great view of Silver from here. I think I'll get up in the morning, get some pictures of that at sunrise rather than going to the beach. And I got up in the morning, I thought, well, actually, you know, maybe it's worth just taking 10 minutes to walk up the wee hill over there. So I went up the wee hill over the road. And it was literally 10 minutes. It was the easiest morning ever. And it was a phenomenal little location. When you get out in the little nook that the car park was in, you got the, all the mountains of Ascent lined up along the uh, along the horizon, and they're all absolutely perfectly spaced out. It was, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the iconic locations are fantastic. But when you come across something that's new or special to yourself, yeah, it is, it's about the joy of discovery, I think. So yeah. I guess it's going to be the, the, the little lesser-known places for me. I'm curious, and I'd love to get your take, being as you're a landscape photographer in, in uh, Scotland, I have a, a, a favorite of my images uh, that I've taken in Scotland is of the uh, the Glengarry Overlook. And I'm sure you know where I'm talking about with the lock, where it looks like the map of Scotland. Uh, yeah. Because I remember that was a location, my first visit to Scotland, and some friends uh, where I was staying said I, I was leaving the Highlands and going to, to the Isle of Skye for a week. And they said, oh, on your way, you've got to stop. You're going to find this place, and you've got to stop and see this where the loch looks like a map of Scotland. And, uh, yeah, it's uncanny, isn't it? Yeah, and, and it is uncanny. And, and it, you can get a great shot right from the car park, which was you know the kind of photography that I, I tend to do. And, uh, and I love that image. It's a favorite of mine. But... Uh, to get to my point, I'm wondering about the changing landscape as this book took four years to do the changing landscape of Scotland, because I went back and I've looked online and found images from that same place, uh, same car park taken 10 years ago. And the image is quite different because what's happening is the trees on the hillside uh, at the car park are growing taller and taller. And that view is quite frankly, it's disappearing. And, And unless, um, there is I, didn't, some... I didn't want to say I was up there just not long ago. I don't think it actually looks that much like Scotland anymore, to be honest, just with the trees infringing on the, on the view. Well, and see, I... I... Not as I remember it. Yeah, I shot my image four years ago, and and I'm curious. I mean, because unless there's a decision by by here in the United States, it would be the Forestry Service or whoever does that in Scotland to to trim those trees, remove some of the trees, or whatever. That view eventually is going to disappear, at least from that from that viewpoint and that's where you know the lock if you move you know a half mile the other direction you, you'd lose the yeah. entire concept that the lock doesn't look anything like the the map of scotland um do you see that happening in other places around scotland are there some perhaps iconic views that maybe not today maybe not tomorrow but in in months and years to come may not be there anymore yeah absolutely uh, definitely definitely changing anyway a perfect example you talk about forestry was up at uh, the Old Man and Store. During the course of writing the book, I went up there to reshoot it again. And it felled the forest on the lower slopes, which you know the park is. So it used to be that you'd park up the, the main road and you would walk up and the first oh, probably 30 minutes of the walk would be through the forest. And they completely clear felled it. So there was no trees at all. It completely spoiled the atmosphere of, of the walk up. But of course, once you're actually up at the Old Man's store, you don't really notice as much because you're above the tree line anyway. So you know, the, the, the meat, the bare bones of the location are, are still every bit as good, but it kind of spoiled the walk a bit. Five years from now, that'll all have grown back over again and it'll be quite a nice walk again. Yeah. But in the meantime, you kind of wonder if maybe they could have been a bit more sympathetic about how they did it and maybe if they could have thinned it out rather than completely clear-cut the whole hillside. 
And again, I think that it's something that is, there's an, an element of history to that as well, because I mean, forestry techniques are changing and they don't plant, you know, single crop forests anymore. They try and mix it up so that it does look better in the landscape. It's, it is changing. It's just the lead time for that change to follow through is in terms of decades rather than years. So I think it, it will hopefully improve with time, but it will get there in the end. Even little things, you know, like uh, when I went out to... Have you ever been to Cairngorms, uh, the Lina D, the Lina Koi? Yeah. So did you go to Braemar? Y- yes, yes. Did you go yeah. Yeah, so did you drive around to the very end of that road, you park up at the wee car park, just before the bridge over the, bridge over the river. Yeah. First oh. time I went to it. Yeah, yeah. You uh, walk yeah, over the I bridge to the river and then you turn left and you you walk up the riverbank. Next time I went, there'd be a massive flood and the whole road bridge had washed away. Oh, no. So, oh, well, so, and you know, the whole it had been such a big flood that the whole road bridge had washed away, but the course of the river had changed as well. So it's not going to be a simple case of dropping in a new bridge. It's, uh, yeah, it'll be quite some time to see that replaced if it's replaced at all. So that meant come back and rewriting all the directions and all the rest of it. It's a fact of life. Things underground are going to change from time to time, but that's just the nature of the beast with guidebooks, I think, isn't it? Yeah, well, and as you say, too, as infrastructure catches up, uh, I mean, you, you talked about Isle of Skye, and I, I know this this past year there were stories about, um, some of them perhaps a, a bit malicious, about, you know, they were shutting the doors on the Isle of Skye because there were too many tourists. And, that and was blown <laughs> so far out of yeah. by the tabloid press. It was just crazy. I mean, it, it's busy. But it was somebody picked up in a quote somewhere and blown it massively out of proportion. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, guys very much still open for business, don't worry about that. But my the point I was gonna make is you know, as infrastructure does catch up, you were talking about the, the forestry processes and how that's done. Building new infrastructure will have an can and will have an impact on the uh, the landscape of Scotland clearly on a, on a big scale and, and down to some of these locations, uh, a car park at the ferry, at, at the ferry pools, those kinds of things. Um, so that all has to be, I think, certainly thought out and, and planned, hopefully well planned so that, that you don't ruin a location just because you're trying to make it more accessible to tourists and visitors. I think you're absolutely right. But I think there's a balance to be struck as well. You, you, you obviously you can't, Honk in a massive car park for 300 people next to a tiny little feature because you just overrun it with people if you make it too easy. But at the same time, if there is a volume of, of cars and traffic turning up to a place already, basically the ferry pools, the fact that there's no parking hasn't stopped people from parking. They just park on the verges and they're destroying the roadside. They're, they're destroying yeah. the paths. So they're cutting off the access for the locals. So, yeah, I don't think there's a necessarily an easy answer to that question, to be honest with you. It's an environmental thing, but you need to, if you manage your paths, it's not just about parking, if you manage your paths and maintain your paths, it stops the erosion, or at least manages the erosion anyway. And, and that, that can vastly lessen the impact that visitors have on an area despite there being higher footfall. You said earlier that you tried not to get to the point of when when you were putting information in the book of telling people, you know, giving them a, a, a GPS coordinate for where to set the tripod to take their photographs. Do you, though, offer some photography tips um, in the book or is it all about where is it, how to get there, et cetera? Um, are there some photography tips in there from your years of experience that you share with folks? Yeah, there are some. There's a there's a handful scattered around through the book of things that I think you know. I've tried not to 
again, become too prescriptive about what people should shoot at any given location. Right? I'm not. There's absolutely nothing about you know how to calculate your hyperfocal distance or control your depth of field or, or change your your shutter speed using filters or anything like that. But every photograph has got a caption telling you where it is, what it is, and how it was shot with all the exit data. So if people are wanting to look at it and think, oh, well, what kind of shutter speed was that to get that effect of the water at all, they can see it. So the captions will hopefully help. And there is some basic stuff. There's, there's, there's more practical advice about how to get out the photograph in a landscape. So it's less about how to use a camera than it is about how to get around in a landscape and do so safely. Well, and I promise I won't put you on the spot and have you uh, debate the, the Canon versus Nikon question. <laughs> oh, Fuji, all the way. Or, or, <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> okay, good answer, as they say. <laughs> I thought I noticed that a lot of your stuff was shot with Canon, though. No, almost exclusively on Canon, yeah. It's one of these things, you buy into, you buy into a system. I have no particular thing against Nikon. It's just I happen to use Canon. And they are amazing cameras. I think the weather ceiling on the Canon cameras is excellent. Uh, so uh, that definitely makes a difference shooting landscapes in Scotland sometimes. And it's yeah, it's, it's a great system. Well, I'm not going to get into that debate. It, that certainly features in some of the Facebook groups we were ta- we've talked about. Um, I am curious, though, you know, the dilemma that I have as a traveler, I'm an avid amateur photographer. I'm not a professional by any means. I have... I've, captured some nice images but any good amateur i think can and i have uh, i'm on the fence on that debate i have uh, uh my full-size dslr is an icon uh but i have uh, a canon g12 that's a great little advanced oh, yeah, you know, top of the line sort of pocket camera and when I'm traveling over to Scotland, I'm always thinking about weight and how much luggage and that sort of thing. And as much as I'd love to bring the Nikon and a couple of lenses and the tripod and all of that, I invariably leave my full-size DSLR at home and carry uh, my little Canon G12. And I even have a little Canon um, Supershot, an even smaller you know, point-and-shoot yep. basic-type camera. And I end up carrying those two because I can stick them in a shirt pocket or in the, the pockets of my cargo pants and, and have my, my camera with me all the time. And, of course, I've got my iPhone, and I've, everybody has a camera phone nowadays. Um, you know, there's even a couple of phone photos I've put in the book. Really? The cameras. Yeah, there's a couple in there. Well, see, you've read my mind because that's where I'm going is can you, from a visitor standpoint, a traveler standpoint, can you travel to Scotland and bring and shoot exclusively with your camera or with a a little point and shoot or or maybe a smaller advanced pocket camera like my little G12? Um, or do you, you know, that's my dilemma is do I, do I pack the, the convenient lightweight stuff or do I carry the big full size stuff that I know I can get really great results with? Is a personal question. I can't answer that for you. <laughs> uh, that's that's completely up to you. That that completely depends on how much satisfaction you get out of the process of taking a photograph with your bigger camera and your bigger kit. Uh, a bigger camera. I mean, I'm talking. This is general rule of thumb, obviously. But you know, the, the more professional cameras tend to give you more leeway and more options and more control. But again, it's totally down to how much enjoyment you get out of it. I mean, you can get some amazing photographs on a phone these days. It's phenomenal what you can do with it in good conditions. When the conditions are less than perfect, that's when you start to really appreciate having the versatility of your SLR or whatever there. You know, if you're, from a personal point of view for yourself, you should have a look at the Fuji system, all joking aside. Yeah. The cameras are really tiny, the lenses are really compact, the quality is phenomenal, and they're, they're really nice cameras to use. If you can beg, borrow, or steal one to, to play with for a week or two, give it, give it a look. 
Oh, I'll have to do that. I, I've got some friends in the business, and uh, I publish a magazine here in the States, and so I have a few contacts here and about. Um, I might yeah. have to, to do that. That's just what I need is one more camera. I've already got three, so. But, you, you can uh, never have <laughs> yeah, it, I, I play bass guitar too, and you can never have too many basses, and I suppose you can never have too many cameras. So exactly, exactly. I'm sitting in a room with more guitars than I can, than I know tunes. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you ask in the book for uh, people to share with you some of their favorite locales. As we mentioned, there's more than 280 locations covered in the book. I'm just curious, have you heard from, I mean, I know the book is just out, but have you heard from anyone yet? Uh, talk to people at the book launch, et cetera, with them sharing some locations that uh, maybe you hadn't thought about shooting yeah, before? There's been a couple, yeah. Um, you know, most of my, a lot of people have known I've been working on this for a very long time, so a lot of people sent me suggestions during the process. Yeah. Uh, and I managed to, um, and if not, check them out. I didn't manage to check out every single one of them actually in person. <laughs> Uh, but I checked every single one of them online or in books or through some other method before finishing the book. But there's been a couple of folk, and there was one guy the other night uh, said, "I was just I was disappointed you didn't have anything on the Ayrshire coast." And I'll be honest, it was a it was an area which I had debated long and hard about whether or not to put in. And in the end, I decided not to, just on the basis of, of space. And uh, yeah, after after he said that to me at the book launch, I kind of felt like maybe I should have. I, I felt slightly bad about that. So maybe I'll pick that up in the first reprint or, or something. <laughs> there you go. Now that the book is is out, I know there'll be a lot of reaction coming into it, and, and maybe you've just leaked a little bit. There might be a reprint uh, or an update coming somewhere down the road, probably not anytime too soon. But I was reading yeah. your offering workshops and uh, even, I think, some guided photography tours. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, I can't tell you too much about that yet because oh. I'm still, it's all still in the pipeline. I've got one confirmed for October up in the Allerdale estate in Sutherland, uh, which is quite off the beaten track. It's an absolutely beautiful estate, though, really stunning. Um, and the lodge up there is very luxurious. It's absolutely absolutely beautiful place. Uh, so we're going to go ahead with that at the start of October. Uh, and I've got a meeting to talk to somebody about maybe setting up some workshops in Persia, hopefully through the autumn, and hopefully trying to sort some stuff out on Harris as well. So yeah, it's all still the focus over the last year has been very much about getting the book finished and getting it to print. And then since it's come out in print, it's been about trying to publicise it. Yeah. But now that started to, to hit a bit of a, a kind of equilibrium, a bit of a plateau, and then I can, I can start trying to put together some retreats and some some workshops. All right. Well, we'll stay tuned to your website for that, and, and I'll be putting a link to your website and stuff on the uh, the show notes Absolutely. on the podcast. Yeah. I'll be honest, keeping the website up to date is not one of my best talents, but uh, if anyone's interested, then facebook.com slash leading lines. I'm a bit better at keeping the social media up okay. to speed. So okay. Give me a follow yeah, that's good to know. I'm going to take a step backward to the location issue. Um, I was struck the other day. I was uh, doing some updating the photo gallery that I have on the podcast website and having to go back and, and remind myself where some of the, lo- you know, I have all these pictures and I think, where was it that I took that? I kind of have a general recollection, but I can't always, I don't take good notes when I'm shooting, which I should. Um, and so I was Googling a, a particular location, which is, I'm sure you're familiar with, it's the uh, the Cairnfield that overlooks uh, Loch Loyne. 
And when I went to Google it, I, I was just absolutely blown away because, you know, I typed it into Google and hit search under images and all these images pop up. But the first one there was my photograph. So I thought, <laughs> Superb. how cool is that? You know, I thought that was yeah, fun. That's quite satisfying, isn't it? <laughs> And Google Earth is is wonderful because you can actually get on Google Earth and, and literally, you know, I know the routes that I've driven on my various trips over there and and I can, you know, it, it's painstakingly slow because you can only advance, you know, a few feet or yards at a time. But you can actually get yeah. on Google Earth, get on the street view and literally on your computer drive down the street. And I've done that to a couple of locations on Sky where I shot like a bench overlooking a lock and I go... Where was it? I have no idea. But by scooting along on Google Earth, I can actually find yeah. that exact spot. And that's pretty awesome, too. It's almost creepy, the level of detail you can find online these days. It's, it's pretty phenomenal. It is. It, it is a little bit scary, but yet it's very helpful for those of us like myself who don't take the notes they should take when they're, you know, I could never do a book like yours because I would I would never have all that information to hand. It just uh, look, wouldn't happen. I'll, I'll be honest with you. The first first couple of locations I went to, I had to whack and revisit because I hadn't taken good enough notes. That was a, that was a learning curve very early in the process. Uh, and I very quickly learned that the best way to do it is to go around and take voice memos on the phone. Uh-huh. So as I was walking around, I would take voice memos on the phone. If it was a grid reference or anything reference in the book, then what I would do is I'd take a photograph on the phone and then I would take a screenshot of the grid reference using a GPS. So I would have it the exact grid reference from where I took the photograph and I could reference that back when I was checking my notes later on. Huh. And then at the end of every day or the end of every walk, I would go back to the van and I would sit down and whilst it was all still fresh in my mind, I would then just type out a first draft of the chapter into my iPad whilst it was all still fresh in my mind I could check my voice memos and all the rest of it and that way it was all down and out whilst it was fresh and accurate so so the voice memos kept it accurate and the fact that I was doing it straight away meant that it still had some kind of vague connection to how I felt engaged with the place if that makes sense yeah yeah I know it's not exactly fine travel literature and everything, but you, you want to put a little bit of an essence of a place into a good like, guidebook, I reckon. So. Oh uh, yeah, no, and that's a great tip. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep that in mind as I start to plan my trip over to the Black Isle and the North Coast 500 this year. Um, the only disadvantage is you feel like a right idiot walking around talking to your friend <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> well, in many Most cases, of the time it's fine. But every now and again, you turn around and you realize that somebody has snuck up behind you, and you're, you're not alone after all. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, most of the time in Scotland, it's not a problem because you might be out there by yourself. <laughs> I, I suspect there are a lot of people in Scotland who wander around talking to themselves, but <laughs> that's another subject, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> I guess to wrap things up, um, in the forward to the book, comedian Ed Byrne uh, writes uh, and touched on a problem I think is so typical for tourists and visitors to Scotland, people like myself, um, who come armed usually with, as they say, my sort of advanced point-and-shoot camera. And I go to these locations and I spend all this time trying to, t- you know, trying to capture the, the shot, which I seldom do. And then you come home and you want to share your photographs with everybody. And I, I, I was struck by um, the way he put it. He said, it's like showing someone a handful of sand and saying, this is what the beach was like. <laughs> <laughs> um, can, can this book... And is it meant to help people like myself come to Scotland and 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 then come home with better photographs? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, hopefully it will help you come back with better photographs. But at the very least, I very much hope that more importantly, you enjoy trying to take better photographs. It's, 
it's not going to turn into a, into a superstar photographer overnight, but it's going to put you in the right place. And hopefully it'll help put you in the right place at the right time. And if it just helps you and encourages you to get out and explore and discover the place for yourself, then frankly, as, I'm, as far as I'm concerned, that's, that's a good job well done. If, if it just helps you enjoy exploring and discovering Scotland a little bit more for yourself, then that's, that's the end game for me. My thanks, as always, to my guest, Doogie Cunningham, author of the latest Photo View guidebook, Photographing Scotland. Photo View, spelled F-O-T-O, capital V-U-E, is a leading publisher in photo guidebooks for the UK. Visit their website, photoview.com, for inspirational photos as well as articles about how to improve your photography and more on their other guidebooks, both published and upcoming. A link is in our show notes. And if you'd like to preview Photographing Scotland, there's a link in our show notes where you can view an online sample of the book. In recent weeks, I'm proud to say we've worked hard to have the podcast added to several popular podcast listening apps. Already available on our website at www.underthetartansky.scot and Apple Podcast, Under the Tartan Sky can now be found on Stitcher, Google Play Music, and Overcast. If you enjoy this podcast and know others who might as well, please feel free to share it with them. Visit our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. And if you're so inclined, leaving a brief review on any of the aforementioned apps will help others to find the show. Following our chat, I've learned that Doogie has quite a collection of both whiskeys and guitars, along with Scotland, two subjects that are close to my own heart. So fair warning, Doogie, when I'm over this summer, I'll be expecting a wee dram and maybe even a brief jam session. Until next time, I'm Glenn Moyer. Tapalev, Agus Alpa Cabra. Under the Tartan Sky is a production of Glenn L. Moyer Creative Communications. For show notes and more information on this and all Under the Tartan Sky episodes, please visit our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. Have an idea for a future episode? Well, get in touch via email at info at underthetartansky.scot. Visit and like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter where our username is at underscore Tartan Sky. That's the underscore symbol Tartan Sky. And thank you for listening.